0: See you and I, together, forever, in love. Welcome back, everyone. For today, I'm joined with Bob Antone to discuss Chief Joseph. But before that, I'll hand over the mic so he can introduce himself further.
1: Hey, everybody. My name is Bob Antone. Uh, My wife, Laura, and I, we live in Snoqualmie Valley, 30 miles east of Seattle. And you all know it as the Real Twin Peaks. And thanks for having me. I guess we could just dive
0: into Chief Joseph. We can start off that his first name was before it was called Chief Joseph. It was Enmutu Yalakit and uh, also Rolling Thunder. He was born on March 3, 1840 in Walla Valley, Oregon, with a father, uh, Tukakis, and uh, his mother, Kaka Pomini, in the Nez Perce tribe, which were largely friendly to whites for the first half of the 19th century. Was there anything I should keep in mind with the basics going beyond that?
1: I think it's good to note that when he was born, there were folks that were um, converting Native people to Christianity. And so they were in contact with Reverend Henry Spaulding, and he was the first to establish a mission. So they were very much in the throes of cultural transformation from the old ways to the Christian ways and the white settlers. That's
0: a really great segue, because what I have uh, is that uh, Spaulding arrived in Idaho in particular in 1836. His rhetoric appealed to Tukakis, who would later on become old Joseph, and Enmutu Yalakit uh, would become Young Joseph, and both would learn a certain degree of English along the way. Was there anything about their conversion to Christianity we should
1: divulge on further? Yeah, that's a very good segue into the legends and some of the prophecies. Now, what I've learned speaking with the Native community over the years and reading certain books and looking in archives is that There were certain prophecies, there were dreams and visions all throughout North America seeing the coming of the white man. And interestingly enough, in the Pacific Northwest, they talk about the Loon people. Now, the Loon people, they had bald heads and hair on their chin and long robes. Those are the black robes. Now, believe it or not, the old men and the old women, they they had visions of these folks that were going to come and they knew they were coming and they were told to open their doors and, and welcome them in. So part of the conversion is not only the forceful conversion, but also the messages from the elders that preceded contact. And that is, that is true. You can look that up. There's many, many places you can look that up and verify that information. To
0: kind of expand off of that, there was a falling out that would ensue over time and that would lead uh, to the uh, Nez Perce to return to Wallowa upon this return the white miners and settlers would take over and even though i believe the nez Perce kind of knew that this was not the best situation for them that old joseph did his best to maintain peace for the nez Perce. in 1855 old joseph signed a treaty as a means to quote unquote preserve their homelands at the behest of governor isaac stevens unfortunately the uh, treaty was effectively unenforceable because the miners and settlers uh, would still come and then uh, there's a new treaty in 1863, which relegated the Nez Perce to a small area around Lapwai and Camia. The government, quote unquote, assumed that the Nez Perce wanted to settle down and become farmers, which young Joseph, he actually detested this because... The Nez Perce were more of a roaming type.
1: Anything I should keep in mind with the treaties and how this went along? Something to point out is that the first wave of contact, these early missionaries, they were really devoted to God and, and the Holy Spirit and the Bible. And they were they were very Christian. Like people, the first wave. And what I've been told is the first contact, a lot of these missionaries that came and risked their lives and crossed the mountains and risked their life to come and preach the word of God, they were the real thing. But then later, people used that contact and then tricked and took advantage of and looked at political advantage of the native people. So they weren't as Christian. They were false. They were fake. They used what the previous missionaries had set up and then they altered it, twisted it tweaked it because they were interested in natural resources like gold. That's what created what they called the thief treaty in 1863 that you mentioned so elegantly a little while ago, the thief treaty of 1863, they had found gold. And so they, you know, they had previously signed a treaty and that was 1855. And they're like, okay, well we can stay in our, our Valley. That's great. But then later they were asked to go to Idaho and they had to haul out of there because they had interest in the natural resources. So that's the way it went. And, and all throughout North America is that deceiving, that deceiving and using the contacts before to get to the natural resources and get to the land. So that's all I wanted to say, I guess, on that.
0: I guess on that topic, uh, we're going backwards by 60 years or so when Lewis and Clark, when they reached uh, nor- the Northwest and they had contact with the Nez Perce. From what I understand that the core discovery in particular actually did want to have a good, genuine connection with them and also respect. Do you think that was something that was passed out that was like dissipated over time gradually? Or do you think there was a bad leadership that overnight that led to that?
1: I just think that slowly over time, people saw through the facade and they were like, at first they thought, OK, well, these folks are good. They're going to do good. And then they they started to see signs of the corruption. And you know, in their first contact, Lewis and Clark with twisted hair—it's very interesting. We're going to get to that in the secret history, but I'm really excited to talk about that particular connection there. So um, over time, yeah, people basically were told by their elders, like I said, to trust these newcomers because there were visions. There were visions of it; they were going to be arriving soon. And then over time, they said, "Well, wait, these are fake." These. People are not real. They're not who they claim to be. And that just happened over 30 years. By the time that basically he came into power, he and his father, Chief Joseph and older Joseph, they knew all these tricks. They had been studying and been watching other treaties and other situations with neighboring tribes, and they were paying attention and they could see through all the BS. My thing is that I think
0: of with uh, Chief Joseph, uh, or we're talking about old Joseph in particular, is that uh there's one chief named lawyer that convinced old joseph to sign i believe this is pertained to the 18 or yeah the 1863 treaty old joseph had such a tremendous regret that he would actually go to Walla to retrieve his old bible that uh spalding gave him and tore it up and then he also gave young joseph advice about dealing with uh white settlers and a tradition before he passed in 1871. it's debated if it's either august or october I wasn't sure if we had any confirmation of the month of his death or anything relative to what old Joseph told young Joseph.
1: I don't have any confirmation of that. And a lot of this history is fragmented. And as you know, we're not in that time period. So there's no real way that I could verify that. But I will say there was a split. There were the Christianized bands that wanted to stay in Idaho. And then there was the folks that wanted to follow the old ways. And that's why I'm going to bring up Smohalla the dreamer. Now, Smohala was also born in the same valley and he was their spiritual leader. He was a very prominent leader. They grew up with Smohala and he was known as the dreamer and he promoted the traditional way of life. He was very much against the white settlers and he was a threat. He was born in Wallula, Washington in 1815. And so many of the Nez Perce Looked up to Smohalla, the dreamer. And in fact, the hairstyles, if you look at Chief Joseph's hairstyle and his father's hairstyle, that is very specific to the dreamer religion. The way that they're, they have their hair and the braids is very specific, almost like how an Amish person would dress because they're Amish or that kind of thing, or a priest would wear a priest's outfit. So the way that their hairstyle is in allegiance with Smohala, and we can get into him in a little bit too. After the death of old Joseph,
0: this is when uh, young Joseph would just become Chief Joseph and take on his father's role. I believe he would continue with his real name. I guess it's also good to point out that Chief Joseph was not a warrior chief or even a hunter. It was his younger brother, Awokat, who would become a war leader, and also Chief Joseph in his new role. He would not sell his land, regardless of government officials pressing him. This is where we get into General Howard, where he would try to strong-arm Joseph to move him to the Idaho Reservation within 30 days of May of 1877. We're probably going to go a little bit uh, dipping into Mark Frost's secret history, but was there anything I should keep in mind about Chief Joseph and the role that he started taking on? Uh, I think you've got it right on. So keep going. The best part to go with is that um, this is going into the secret history pertaining to General Howard, is that he refers to the Nez Perce going through likely Whitetail Falls how, and how the water stopped running during this time and that the smoke misdirected the enemies. The river flowed again only after Joseph escaped. Putting aside the fact that Whitetail Falls is explicitly a Twin Peaks reference, also the fact that it's probably worth mentioning is that Mark Frost does put in deliberately contradictory information throughout the secret history. Was there anything about the real world history that this seems like it fits with the Nez Perce? Or is there anything that people not familiar with the tribe should uh, think about?
1: Well, yes, that's a really good question. So in Twin Peaks, obviously, it's Snoqualmie Falls, and that's where we're at right now. So the Nez Perce and many other tribes knew this location very, very well, because there were ancient trade routes. They knew this area, and they had come over here to trade, and they intermarried, and everyone was related. And so the interesting thing is when I read The Secret History and they're talking about this visit to this falls and this mysterious place, you know, Meriwether lewis I was instantly reminded of what I've been told about this location, that it was a place of healing, it was the place of Moon the Transformer, and that people from all over North America, this is pre-European contact, came to this location for reasons of healing ceremonies. They came to the Snoqualmie Valley here Because they recognized it as an opening to another place. In fact, the old stories, which you can find online, we can also provide those links, refer to a portal in the sky where a star being, where there were two sisters that basically were kidnapped. They were abducted, if you will, by star beings and taken to the sky realm. Now, between Snoqualmie and North Bend, there is a point where that opening in the sky is located And there is a rock formation there. And so people, including the Nez Perce and so many other tribes knew about this place. And so in real life, yes, people visited here. They knew it as a sacred place. They knew it as a place of healing, of power, and it was revered. So there you go.
0: The other one is that that's worth mentioning is that, I don't know if it was the Nez Perce in particular, but wasn't Snoqualmie Falls, uh, just going back to the real world history for a moment, wasn't Snoqualmie Falls considered to be like almost a bridge between uh, heaven and earth? I'm not sure if that's something that would be unanimous among the tribes, but was that something that was shared beyond the Nez Perce or any tribes that I should keep in mind?
1: Uh, yeah. So if you go on the website, Snoqualmie Tribe, they, they talk about prayers being lifted through the mist and it connects heaven and earth. That's sort of a later explanation, you know, heaven and earth. It's basically to their ancestors, you know, in a higher realm. So their prayers would be carried almost like sage smoke, you know, you you see in different ceremonies where people use sage and feathers and they they pray and the, the sage smoke carries their prayers. So the mist of the falls carries the prayers of the people, yes, and connects heaven and earth. That is correct. And there are different interpretations of Snoqualmie Falls. And so there's not just one, but yes, the Snoqualmie version, I would encourage folks to go on their website and to honor their explanation which is what you just described heaven and earth yep
0: to shift back to the real world history and away from mark Frost's secret history this is more so about how joseph was extremely anti-war and that uh, he agreed to move to the dismay of his tribe as a means to keep him safe and he also thought slash hoped that if they could talk it out with the settlers and anyone who was opposed to them that they would be able to find common ground but also it's probably worth mentioning that this was deeply rooted in him having a newborn child with one of his wives and also around this time a band of Nez Perce warriors end up seeking revenge for murder across white settlements and this actually upset joseph deeply it also prompted him and his tribe to flee to canada and this is all as a means to avoid an all-out war Was there anything about the finer details of the Nez Perce warriors seeking revenge or any of the events that before, during, and after I should keep in mind?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. When you read that real history, there's this tug of war between having a reaction, which we all would have a reaction to being chased out of our homeland and having our people killed, and then this wanting, uh, encouraged to remain peaceful. There's this tug of war and you see it the whole time and it's like, no, 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 no. Hold back for a second. Hold back for a second. And it's natural to understand people would want to fight back. And it's, it's this reminder from Joseph and it's almost, it's this strange, ironic back and forth when you read the history and we, we don't quite know everything because we weren't there. We weren't there in person. We can't say for sure. But when you read, you know, the history that's written, it goes back and forth. It's like, they want to attack, then they're held back. They want to attack, then they held back. And it's, it's very strange in that way and very mysterious to me when I read that history.
0: On the topic of Joseph trying to uh, move away from war, General Howard was hot on his trail, but would end up being slowed down during the chase because of his wagons, and also guns, just how unwieldy they are. And there's the Battle of the Big Hole. This would be the moment that would irreversibly shatter any illusion of peace. Joseph would claim that he would have killed more, but he refused to do so, and then uh, the Nez Perce would flee and continue this thousand-mile journey. During this time, they entered into Yellowstone, where uh, some young warriors shot two whites. Ollicott, in particular, was killed in battle in Montana. This was after Colonel Miles caught up. Joseph surrendered and apparently did not know English well, at least from the research that I saw at this point. I guess this might be shifting a little back and forth, but could you confirm or deny how much English
1: Chief Joseph did or did not know by this point in his life? I surely cannot verify that because it's so many years ago. And so there's no way to verify that at all. Actually, I should
0: also point out was that in preparation for this episode, I actually reached out to my professor from uh, from one of my previous universities where she taught indigenous people of Eastern America and also indigenous people of Western America. And she gave mm-hmm. me a lot of great links to kind of go off with like research for Chief Joseph. And it seemed like even in that it just seemed like it was a little bit contradictory. And I just want to make sure I wasn't overlooking anything.
1: No, it, you're doing great. You know, this this history is, is so jagged and rough and it's kind of shameful, you know, and so it's understandable that we don't have all the information because some of it has been sh- swept under the rug and some of it has been hidden and it's understandable and we're not there. So there's no way we can 100% say that we know for sure. We're just reading what was, you know, written and then passed down. So we're guessing just like the people before us
0: now that we're caught up to the mid late 1870s uh this is where we can shift back to mark frost secret history because he really heavily concentrates like 1877 onward in this part he actually focuses a lot on colonel miles and what he wrote where apparently liver eating johnson claimed knowledge of joseph's power and their ways that they would set, surrender 30 miles of the canadian border near Bear Paw Mountains of Montana, and this was only after a five-day battle. And unfortunately, only 350 women and children survived among 87 warriors. I mean, obviously, this is a really grisling, ugly battle, and a lot happens in this, like, five days. We could go up with the uh, Chief Joseph speech. Once again, come back to the secret history, is that Tammy Preston, she has a follow-up where She thinks that this uh, filing speech may or may not be embellished, but also upon surrendering, Joseph held a quiet pride in the face of Howard.
1: So one thing I'll say about the speech is there's a lot of controversy, again, missing pieces. They don't know if he actually said this. The rumor is, again, he didn't speak English very well. Also, the translator was said to have not actually physically been there, and the speech was relayed to the translator. I'll
0: so, uh, have the quote just to make sure if I can confirm or deny because, uh, like I said, there's a lot of the links that I had uh, th- that in my research where I wasn't 100% sure. And also, like I was saying before, Mark Frost, he usually put in more so pertaining to the Twin Peaks characters, but he'll throw in a lot of half-truths to kind of throw you off. I guess with that in mind, I can at least start with a quote because at least on this it does claim on page 47 which is was meant to be presented as a real document says that he spoke good english and also he uh, needed to be understood by his own people that general howard an interpreter and then the quote follows tell general howard i know his heart what he told me before i have in my heart i'm tired of fighting our chiefs are killed the old men are all dead my brother who led the young men is dead it is cold and we have no blankets Our little children are freezing to death. My people, some of them have run away to the hills and have no blankets, no food. No one knows where they are, perhaps freezing to death. I want to have time to look at my children and see how many I can find. Maybe I shall find some among the dead. Hear me, my chiefs, I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. I have fought, but from where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. Is this a quote that is mostly dead on accurate, or is this something that may or may not have been fabricated in Mark Frost's Secret History?
1: It could be fabricated on all sides. And for instance, Chief Seattle's speech, there's debate because you got to remember these folks that were European, that were writing the newspapers and translating, they were creating literature and drama and entertainment. You know, they call it yellow journalism, right? And so that was all over the place. That was rampant. So when you have a famous chief who surrenders and you have a translator, of course, they're probably going to tweak or create or invent words and shape the history to their liking, to their entertainment. They're going to exaggerate. So my feeling is probably not dead on. There's probably some truth to it, but I bet you it, it was elaborated, exaggerated from the original. That's my gut instinct. And I can't validate that, but that is just my common sense feeling about
0: that honestly I, I would share a similar sentiment or because um in david bushman's book conversation with mark frost frost does actually talk about how you know he's uh he's very passionate about history but he also does concede to the idea that history is really just at the behest of basically the victor for to paraphrase so i do think i do agree that it is uh, more or less embellished but it does at least seem in line with uh, chief joseph and the fundamental principles he stands though
1: one thing I want to point out is with this culture that we're discussing, the native culture, it's not about how much you know, it's about how much you care. It's about your heart. So I want to be very clear with that. We can know a lot of facts, we can know a lot of things, and we can um, we can give credit where it's due, absolutely. But the bottom line is your heart, that you care. And so as we, I want to, at this point, give a link out. So if P, uh, people want to get more in touch with the Nez Perce language program or cultural revitalization program, they go on the Nimipu website. So the, the actual name for Nez Perce is Nimipu. So if you go on n-i-m-i-p-u-u-t-i-m-t.org, org, is the Nez Perce language program. And if folks are really serious about it, they can go on there and they can support this program, they can look at videos, they can hear audio samples of elders speaking. I think you can even donate money to this program, which is a great idea. I think you would agree with that. So I wanted to give a chance to advertise for them. Just go on, yeah, Teamt.org. That's where you should go for language. Before we go any further. Okay, get back to what we were talking about. I forgot. Where do we leave off? His speech?
0: This is the speech that he has after he has to surrender to General Howard. This is coming from, again in secret history, from uh, Captain Charles Erskine Wood, where the Nez Perce, they would be taken to what is effectively a POW camp for eight months in Kansas. Then they'd be taken next summer to what is effectively a concentration camp, where uh, half the tribe would die from a a variety of diseases. Joseph would go on to find justice for the Nez Perce against three presidents for 31 years. And then also Captain Wood, he actually supported Joseph and even raising money to bring him to Washington. Was there anything I should keep in mind about the uh, conditions they were in or the variety of diseases that they endured or anything that Chief Joseph had to deal with for for the
1: years of the settlers and everything that led to this? I do have something very interesting to bring up. So upon surrender. Now, if you look this up, you will find it online. There is an artifact in a museum. And apparently there's a story that upon surrender, Chief Joseph presented the general with a cuneiform tablet. And this tablet actually exists and it's in a museum. And apparently that tablet dates back 4,000 years. Now going to the secret history, you know, the medicine bag that Lewis was wearing around his neck and it was found empty. The ring was stolen or something like that. I think I have that right. Well, it's interesting because Chief Joseph in, real, in the real history, supposedly in the real history, he carried this little postage stamp size cuneiform tablet around his neck in a medicine bag. And that was presented as in his surrender. And it was said to be an artifact that was passed down in his family for many, many generations. And these are the Sumerians or the Assyrians, and it was a Sumerian tablet. And believe it or not, it was translated by, and interestingly enough, the last name, not Briggs, but Biggs. (laughs) I think it was at the University of Chicago, last name Biggs. I wish it was Briggs. That would be really cool if it was Briggs. But it was a receipt for a lamb used in a sacrifice. Now, I know that's probably like, what the F? But that seriously, that is a real story. That's not in the secret history. But doesn't that make sense how Mark Frost may have used some of that mythology and applied it to his book? Isn't that amazing?
0: Oh, yeah. No, uh, it reminds me uh, when I did my Meriwether Lewis episode, we did talk about Mark Frost's potential mindset for the secret history because... Mark Frost is on record for saying that he didn't start writing The Secret History of Twin Peaks until after him and Lynch finished writing Season 3, but you look at uh, his knowledge on all the non-fictional characters he has, you know, such as uh, obviously Chief Joseph, Meriwether Lewis, Jack Parsons, Richard Nixon, that a lot of this stuff was uh, clearly something that was like he was passionate about for decades, and you can definitely see in his writing across all the board for all, all of his non-fictional characters.
1: Did you ever hear about
0: that Sumerian
1: tablet? Have you ever heard that in the medicine pouch?
0: Admittedly, that is actually completely new to me. That one is, that there's a lot to sink in
1: with that one. I know, it is strange. Okay, so the Mormon Church is in great support of this artifact, obviously, because it confirms their belief system, Joseph Smith. And so the Mormon Church is 100% saying that it's a true story. They're 100%. There are some Native American sites where they also support this idea that this Sumerian tablet was found or presented to the general. So it's up for debate but it, it is in a museum. So I would encourage people to look that up. Some people say that it was just mislabeled by the museum directors that somehow the Sumerian tablet was accidentally labeled in association with Chief Joseph and that's and that was sometime in the 1970s I believe. And so that's where the mix up came and then somebody made up a story and everybody believed it, but I'm still investigating cuz that is a really that is a really interesting story. I really
0: wish I kind of knew about that going into it, because I feel like that could be a huge portion of an episode in and of itself about him.
1: I got some more Whoppers for you, so keep going.
0: (laughs) To continue on with Charles Woods, is that Howard apparently told Wood to keep Joseph well-treated, but also heavily guarded after Chief Whitebird escaped, Howard actually did try to claim Joseph violated his terms of surrender, and Wood was in complete disagreement. Leverine Johnson told Wood of a powerful medicine that white men awoke, that there would quote-unquote come a reckoning for those who take over the Net as Purse lands. Does this pertain to anything that we were just talking about in terms of what uh, Biggs discovered, or is this something completely different?
1: I think that's something completely different that's more of like, Yeah, I don't think that refers to the artifact. So it would have mentioned the artifact.
0: Okay, yeah, because it does have a very, like a better term, almost a fantastical aspect. It seems like this is the only time it's really brought up in any part of the secret history, and especially about Chief Joseph. So I did think that was really interesting that that was put in there. Also on that note, did you take anything away from, we'll say from 1877 till now, that uh, this reckoning for anyone who took over the Nez Perce lands?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at different areas of the United States where, God, I got to be really careful with what I say here. Let's just put it this way. There are very powerful spirits that are real that can do things in retaliation. Let's just say that. I'm only going to say that. And that's, where, that's where I'm going to leave it off. Yep.
0: Oh, that's understandable. I guess to move on, I probably won't read the whole thing. There is a speech that is on, on pages uh, 52 and 53. I believe it's January 14th, 1879. Chief Joseph gives a speech. While it does go on for probably a little too long for me to feasibly read for the show, it does boil down to how he wants white people to view Indians as people. And that also he talks about uh, friendly interactions with Lewis and Clark, his ancestors slash family taught to never break a bargain and speak only the truth. From my takeaway from it, it seems like he truly wants peace with whites and Indians, despite everything that he dealt with. Was there anything about this speech that rang true to you or is there anything that uh, I should keep in mind?
1: Yeah. Well, so the name the name Pooh means human being, basically. He's just, ta- he's actually acknowledging that we're all related. And part of the information that I've heard is that they acknowledged ancient tribes from Europe that were here and, and parts of the world. And so that we're all related. And the word poo just means human being. So I think it's pretty spot on. What you're saying is pretty good. Keep on going.
0: Between his uh, 1879 speech and what he said when he started to General Howard, it fits 100% character from my research of Chief Joseph. Uh, It's just that sometimes I always like to see if there's anything in the finer details, but the last thing that I have, uh, pertaining to secret history at least, these are the closing thoughts by Garland Briggs and Tammy Preston, is that it would take six years for them to move back to Washington Oklahoma. They are forced to live confined with other tribes. They do go on to talk about his death, which we'll get to. The one that's probably worth mentioning is that Briggs mentions parallels of Joseph's pilgrimage to Lewis's vision quest from the secret history. I'm not sure how much we w- really want to bring up too much of Meriwether Lewis in this, but were there any parallels you want to think about in terms of the two, like what they dealt with during their respective time in the secret history?
1: Yes. So in the real history, let's go back to Smohala. Now, Smohala was the dreamer prophet. And there was a time when there were two tribes in the United States that were the most traditional. The Hopi was one in the Southwest, the Hopi, and the Wanapum we got to talk about the Wanapum and the Wanapum and Smohala, they tie into Twin Peaks. And I'm going to explain how you're going to be. This is going to really blow you away. So Hanford Nuclear, I know we're going way forward in time, okay? but the site of Hanford Nuclear is Wanapum land. Now, Smohala, the dreamer, was the leader, the spiritual leader of Chief Joseph and his father and his family. And they were located at along the Columbia River. So in the history, uh, you know, the famous episode eight, you know, in season three, the nuclear blast, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And we all we all know that famous episode It was a wonderful, strange episode. Well, it refers to the history of the development of nuclear fusion. Now, in the 1930s, people were experimenting with different forms of nuclear fusion. And just before they figured it out, they were kicked out of Germany. So this is very interesting. And they found refuge in Copenhagen, Denmark. And a lot of these folks were of Jewish heritage. And they continued their research. And they found not only, you know, the electron, the neutron, they discovered plutonium, and at a point, they came to the United States along with Albert Einstein, and they discovered the fact that, oh, my God, we have the ability to make a bomb here. This is crazy. We have to tell the president. So they used Albert Einstein as a messenger to the president. And this was before Pearl Harbor. And he took it seriously. He's like, wow, yeah, there's something to this. They created, they created a, a government uh, study. And then Pearl Harbor happened. And then they had to find a place To manufacture plutonium and you'll never guess where that location was it was along the columbia at the hanford nuclear site they came to the columbia river and those folks in the early 40s they said wow we have enough water for the cooling system we have power from bonneville power we can manufacture plutonium here on this location that happens to be the wanapum location that is historically wanapum and this purse so think about that connection. And I mean, it's really important to, notice, to note that because you see that reference, you know, in episode eight of the nuclear and the birth of Bob, you know, the birth of Bob. And at Hanford, there's a plant B with a big capital letter B. It's very interesting, the birth of Bob. So it's plant B with a big B. And so I've been finding all these connections. And uh, that was one I wanted to point out. And it goes all the way back to Chief Joseph in real history. We're talking about real history. And the birth of the atomic bomb, and that is to me just mind blowing. Did everything I say to you make sense, or did it was it a little fragmented? I mean, you can ask me to clarify anything that I just said because it might have been a little confusing. I understand.
0: No, no, that made perfect sense. Um, yeah, for a moment, I wasn't sure where it was going to go in terms of the trajectory because we made such a time jump. But the fact that you cycled back to the Nes purse, it fits in pretty much almost all too well, almost like better than. What uh than what Mark Frost had in, uh, in terms of Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard in The Secret History is that it does show that there's more of a interconnectivity with these non-fictional characters that you have to read between the lines. So, wow, that's, that's some serious, tremendous research on your part.
1: So when they started damming the rivers and creating the Hanford nuclear site, they basically flooded the Wanapum of their traditional village. Now, remember, this is Chief Joseph, spiritual leader. And his people, his descendants, and they flooded them out, basically, and that that was devastating. So then it was. Now it's only the Hopi that remain. One hundred percent. There are places in the Hopi Reservation where they are one hundred percent traditional. You know, without electricity, they live off the land like they have for thousands of years. But there was a time in the '40s where the Wanapum, where the other tribe here in Washington State, it's it's a point of pride. It's an amazing history. I encourage people. To look up the history of Smohalla the Dreamer and the Wanapum, specifically in connection to Chief Joseph. Wow.
0: Yeah. Sorry. That's uh, I gotta let that uh, sink in. Um. That's uh, That's definitely a connection uh, that would change a bit of, quite a bit of Part Eight. That would go a long way. Sorry. I guess the only thing I could do is uh. We could probably shift back to uh. With Chief Joseph, more specifically to his um. Eighteen seventy nine speech. What happened is that speech that I mentioned on pages uh, 52 and 53 that he apparently received a standing ovation after meeting with President Hayes that night. But then also subsequently he would deal with disease and the loss of his daughter. And we're going to fast forward to 1885 where Joseph and the many others were packed into trains and sent to the Colville reservation. Then the Christianized Nez Perce were sent back to uh, La Puy, Also, uh, reached out to Chief Moses, uh, who had lived near them in, uh, I believe it's Nespelem. Pelham. It was a peaceful yet impoverished life. Uh, Moses, he felt that the Nez purse were collectively diving into gambling and alcoholism. And I guess this is probably, unfortunately, this is some that uh, seems to be some that is dealt with on more reservations than is reported. But it just that seems like a thing that seems to be plaguing a lot of reservations is that there's a lot of gambling, a lot of substance abuse. Uh, do you know of anything that people should keep in mind about that uh, to raise awareness for this sort of issue?
1: Yeah, that's that's definitely the truth. You're speaking the truth. There are struggles all over native country with you know alcohol and and different substances. And culture and revitalization a lot of times is the cure. People get involved in revitalizing their language carving traditions or basket making and so if anyone out there has a heart for this and and i'm sure a lot of you do a lot of your listeners you know there are places where you can go and donate to various tribes their language programs we mentioned the nimipu we mentioned the site earlier but yeah there are youth of all kinds but especially the native community is hit hard and obviously because alcohol was introduced much later You know, Europeans had alcohol for thousands of years and alcohol, you know, a lot of people built up a resistance to that. That's a well-known fact. And so, yeah, alcohol is, is a killer. And the best thing we can do as allies is to encourage tribal leadership to keep these programs going and to entrust those folks and encourage and uplift. It's not about reaching down to someone less fortunate. It's just about encouraging and cheering people on. And donating, you know, put your money where your mouth is, like go online and donate to organizations. And really there is a real struggle, but language is one of the the best ones because languages are dying every day. And there are people that are keeping certain Salish dialects alive. There's still a few fluent speakers here and now. And to encourage folks to record those fluent speakers, archive that information connect with the university, those are all very, very wonderful things to get involved with. And I encourage everyone listening to do that.
0: Unfortunately, with the uh, with the Nez Perce being impoverished and a little bit, I guess, demoralized for like a better term, Joseph and the tribe would become more reliant on the government handouts and uh, would continue making appeals in DC and would hope for a return to Walla. He even had a surprisingly amicable interaction with Howard and Miles in 1897 and uh, a few years later he was actually given permission to return to wallowa where uh, the white settlers they actually scoffed at his wish to reclaim that would lead him to be to being remain in colville where his optimism was just completely gone and then in 1903 he gave an anniversary speech at the carlisle indian industrial school in pennsylvania once again strange enough alongside general howard only a year later on uh, september 21st 1904 his wife would retrieve his headdress as he lay dying. He died of an undiagnosed illness, but his doctor said that he would die. He died of a broken heart. Was there anything I should keep in mind about his last few years and just like how everything just completely worked against him?
1: Yeah. And to me, when I hear that history, it sounds a hundred percent right on. That makes sense to die of a broken heart after everything that he'd been through. I did want to bring up the different lodges. You know, you have the black lodge, the red lodge, and the white lodge. So when I was experiencing Twin Peaks and the various episodes and Fire Walk With Me and then just reading online about the Black Lodge, the Red Lodge, the White Lodge, it struck me that it was very similar to some of the older beliefs in Washington and Idaho and Oregon, Northern California, basically the Pacific Northwest and Salish speaking people. And the Black Lodge, it was explained to me It's very interesting. The Black Lodge in the old religions is your youth. It's like when you're young and you experience some kind of trauma and you enter the spirit world through the Black Lodge and you enter the spirit world through the darkness. And in the middle of your life, you're healing, you're recovering from that trauma. And that's the Red Lodge. You're recovering in your middle age. It's the color of healing, the Red Lodge. And then in the old belief, it was Explained to me that the white lodge or the color white is the goal. So at the end of your life, as you become older and wiser, you ascend to the highest level. Some people would say the mountain goats here on Mount Psy. That's the mountain that's in the background of the double R Diner. You see that giant mountain that's Mount Psy. So there are mountain goats up there. And so you ascend to the white lodge, you ascend to the color white, the fur of the mountain goat. And that is your ascension to the white light. And that is all contained in the old religion here. And I always felt strongly that there was a connection. And then I read somewhere that Mark Frost was inspired by some Native American beliefs. And I believe it was from the Midwest. Can you verify what I just said uh, of his influence of the lodges?
0: Um, I can less so through a Mark Frost quote, but I know that Harley Payton, he talked about how he, Mark Frost, and Bob Engels, they had books uh, which dealt primarily about the occult, but the thing that is the interesting crossover is that I'm thinking of earlier in the Secret History during the Meriwether Lewis segment where they refer to the Black Lodges and White Lodges where I believe the White Lodges would be pertain to the Freemasons and they were more about like a democratic type of order of the world. And that uh, the Black Lodge would be more of uh, the Bavarian Illuminati where they were more of like there was more of a – they didn't refer to it as chaos, but there was definitely a darker nature and a darker purpose behind it. Uh, did you think there was any parallels between anything about Freemasonry that was established during that section and how it parallels with yours?
1: Oh, well, Freemasonry is, from what I've been told and what I've studied Freemasonry, there are elements of what you'd call like the Scottish longhouse. It's it's like Scottish paganism. So it'd be the earth-based religions that were located in England and Ireland and Scotland and specifically Scotland. And these are earth-based religions that are very similar to some of the religions here in the Pacific Northwest. So if you go back far enough in time, you will find similarities in animal spirits. And so the Masons, the Scottish temple, contain elements of European paganism, which has very many similarities to animism here in North America too. So that's one connection i found kind of interesting
0: it's like i was saying before is that i feel like there's a certain degree of commonality across all the non-fictional characters throughout the secret history so there's always some about learning more about the black lodge and the white lodge through the lens of like whether it's through freemasonry whether it's through the nez Perce, where you do get that extra dynamic of at least where mark frost's influence was coming from but also how it can fit in the twin peaks mythos
1: yes for me I live here in this area and I've lived here all my life. So for me and and my family, it's very interesting cuz some of the sites that people visit all year round, they were familiar to us before the television show and it's surreal. It's very strange for us because we've known these sites before the television and before, you know, the film and we we know another connotation and Those connotations happen to be just as rich or deep or mystical as Mark Frost's book, and even more so in other directions. And that's the strange thing. And so if I took Twin Peaks out of my life, if I just removed Twin Peaks completely out of my life, I would still have so much pre-Twin Peaks culture and folklore that surrounds me in this neighborhood, in this community. It pre-exists. And so it's part of my heritage, and it goes back. And that's what Mark Frost tapped into. He was tapping into, and so was David Lynch. And I believe when they came here, just like so many people, including yourself, when you arrive here, you feel something. You feel that this land is very special. You can actually feel it vibrating when you get out of the car and you, you look at the mountain and you see the mist and you smell the air. They too felt that as many visitors for hundreds of years of thousands of years have felt that when they arrived at this very, very special place where I live. And that's where this all comes down to. They were inspired by the real place and the real spirit. And uh, that's something I really love to talk about.
0: It makes me think uh, last year around this time, at the time of this recording in uh, mid-late October, is that I was able to see Snoqualmie Falls for the first time. And it's astounding how, even though I was there on a weekday, that there were still more than a few people that would just stare at the falls for minutes on end. I'm not just saying like two or three minutes. I'm saying like 10, 15, 20 minutes just in awe because it's like we were saying before is that even if you don't really know the history, there is something about the, you know, we were saying before about how the falls are a connection between heaven and earth and how I think people can feel that on a subconscious level.
1: Absolutely. And the one thing I wanted to mention is we had Chief Joseph's relatives that lived here at our house. And this comes to, I'll just tell a little story. It's around Halloween. So if you don't mind, I'd like to go into a little, little story about that. There was a time when we had a young lady living here, and she's a singer-songwriter, and she was from the Umatilla Reservation, and she happened to be a relative of Chief Joseph, and she lived here uh, for part of a summer. Wonderful singer, great singer, played the guitar, and we were collaborating on some music together, and we were having a good time. And I was working on artwork, and she was just staying here for the summer. She had a friend in Yakima. Uh, The Yakima tribe, and we went to some powwows over there in Yakima and drove back and forth. And that particular summer, there was a series of very strange, unexplained events here at our house. And one night, I woke up and there were three dog like beings that were standing right next to my bed. And I know that sounds really strange, but there were three canine looking beings and they were glowing with light. And so on the chests, of these beings, it would look like outer space. It looked like you could see into outer space, into deep space. And they kind of looked like Doberman pinchers. One was really tall, one was medium, and one was small. And they were there for a few seconds and then vanished. Well, you know, you could explain that as, hey, I was having a dream and I woke up suddenly. But the interesting thing was at that very moment, this young lady, she comes bursting in my door, screaming and shrieking. And she just you know, huddles under the blankets with me and is just absolutely terrified. And she said that moments before out here in the living room, there was a face in the wood. There was a a face that moved around in the wooden paneling. I know that sounds very Twin Peaks-like, but that's what really happened. And it scared her so bad. So basically the wood grain turned into a face and was rotating and looking around inside the wood paneling out here in the living room. At that exact moment I had seen, or just around the same time, I had seen these three canine, apparitions. And that was one of the occurrences. And so it was very interesting. But a few nights later, there was another instance where out in our driveway, she claimed to see a giant white horse. Now I know you're thinking, oh, you're making this shit up, but I'm not making this shit up. And the white horse, of course, you think immediately of Twin Peaks, the white horse on the shelf. Okay. Well, this was a giant white horse. And you know that the Nez Perce, they bred horses. You know, they were known as experts with horses. So it's very interesting. But she, again, was totally freaking out. She said she saw this giant horse, white horse out in the driveway, pacing around in the driveway. And she was crying and she was really upset. And I'm not going to obviously say the name of this person because I just want to keep that private. But I'm going to say that she called her elder, another relative of Chief Joseph, to come and come to the house because she said that our house was stranger and more haunted than any house that she'd ever been on, on the Umatilla Reservation. She said, this was the scariest things. <laughs> These are the scariest things she's ever seen. And I was like, wow. And I met her elder, who's another relative of Chief Joseph. And he came here. Wonderful man. He's probably in his seventies at the time. And this was around 2009. Yeah, 2009. It's around then. He came in and he did a blessing and he he talked to us and he he told us about the spirits that were in the house here. And he told us that there were so many spirits here. They were called here and they were hanging out together and that there was no elbow room and that we had welcomed so many people that there were so many spirits and there just wasn't enough room and they were kind of crowding each other out. He also looked at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sai is, again, the mountain with the mountain goats on it. I mentioned the White Lodge. Mount Sai is that beautiful mountain that you see in many of the episodes of Twin Peaks. He said that there are giants that his people knew about. There were giants that guarded that mountain. That mountain was sacred. And his people believe that there were giants that guarded the graves. There are secret graves that are up on that mountain. Certain parts of the mountainside have cemeteries or graves that are ancient But he also said that there are secrets in that mountain and these giants guard the mountain. And so this comes from Chief Joseph's relative. And this is, you know, like I said, 2009. So when you're talking about a rich life, if you're talking about living and and interacting with culture outside of the secret history of Twin Peaks and outside of Twin Peaks in general, I mean, this is a great example of what we have here. And it's amazing. And it's still alive. It's still here for now. This area is going under a lot of development. And a lot of houses are being built and businesses coming in and old houses being torn down. And there's a lot of folks that are upset. But this area for the last 100 years, it's, it's been very, you know, a lot of changes anyway with logging and everything else. So it's been kind of a continuous developing. But the good news is these old spirits, this magic, if you will, of the land is still here. And I know I've seen posts of yours and other fans who have come to the area and they absolutely feel it. And they're like, they're struck right away. And they, they know that there's something to this place. And I believe that when Mark Frost and David Lynch brought their camera crew here, you know, in 1989 or so, I was there actually on the very first day of the pilot episode. Some of that magic came up from the ground into the lens of the camera and was broadcast all over the world. And that explains why so many people internationally they make a journey here. It's almost like a pilgrimage, like a spiritual journey to come to the Snoqualmie Valley and to visit. And it's, it's almost a religious experience. So I just wanted to share that with you. And I hope you enjoyed those stories.
0: The one thing I'm thinking of is that uh, in terms of the white horse, I know that Mark Frost in the days of wrapped in plastic, to my surprise, actually uh, said what the white horse represented where he believed it was a harbinger of death. If it doesn't compromise the identity of the person, the story, does that align with what was believed upon that sighting that night?
1: Well, when you say that it's the harbinger of death, and then that she was frightened, and that she called her elder to come and bless her house, I would say that is very congruent, yes.
0: Also, with the uh, face in the wood, um, naturally, me and I'm sure many of the listeners will also think of Josie at the end of, uh, you know, in her fate uh, in mid-season two. Clearly, that was pertained to being that there was a malevolent force that prompted that. Do you think that what she saw that night, that would also be a malevolent force, or do you think there was something else at work?
1: I think it's very possible it was a malevolent force. And again, she was very frightened. She grew up on the reservation. So if you've been on a reservation, you understand, you know, it's a different place. You know, there's a lot of hard lives, people that live on reservations, they live sometimes very hard lives. And so for her to be frightened and have, you know, she had been around culture and been around ceremony for most of her life. And she's at that time was in her mid 20s, early 20s, mid 20s, something like that. So yeah, that would mean, yes, this was a malevolent force and it's not the first time that, you know, we have dealt with darker spirits, but yes, there is that. And that is in Twin Peaks as well. I can tell you so many times that something that appears on the screen in Twin Peaks for some reason, and I call this cultural clairvoyance. And I don't know if it's Mark Frost and David Lynch combined or just David Lynch or just Mark Frost it's hard to say where the idea comes from. But these things happen in the film or in the TV show. And I'm like, oh, my God, that actually happened in real life over here. And I'll have a character and a name and a circumstance. I can give you examples of the one arm man. I mean, it's crazy. There are these strange parallels with real life here. And I know that they didn't know these folks. They just for somehow are able to tap into, in a clairvoyant way, real history, real heritage, and real folklore of My neighborhood here, our neighborhood, our community, and so past, present, future. I'm talking about like an episode will air and maybe five years after that, it happens for real or the opposite happens. Something happens and then five years later, it appears in Twin Peaks. But oftentimes things that happen in Twin Peaks precede happening in real life which is so strange and so cool.
0: I was mentioned before is that Mark Frost confirmed uh, what the White Horse represented, at least back in the 90s. As far as I can say about A Face in the Wood for Josie's, that the only thing I know behind the scenes for that is that Joan Chen, I know that she just didn't really want to be on the show anymore, so they decided to write Josie out, but the first time you watched that episode, did you think that strangely aligned and like it was almost a coincidence? Or did you think that Mark Frost, David Lynch, Bob Engels or Harley Payton, do you think they were tapping into something that pertaining to the Nez Purse or anything that we discussed?
1: Yeah, I never I never connected those two until you you brought that up. I was basically with my story. I was just telling you about this face in the wood. But when you brought that up, it's like, wow, how cool. But again, I feel that they are tapping into something deeper. Like I said, cultural clairvoyance. Cultural clairvoyance is you create something cultural, whether it be a film, a book, a TV show, a painting, a drawing, and somehow past, present, or future, you were able to see remotely that event. That is what David Lynch and Mark Frost do all the time. And I know many fans will agree. This case, I didn't know or remember that scene about the face in the wood, and you reminded me of that. And I think that's super cool. But yeah, as far as the connection there, I don't know if it has a specific connection to Twin Peaks. I just think it's interesting that it happens time and time again.
0: I know there's a lot of overlap and also differences between how Mark Frost and David Lynch operate. But I do think of how, in the case of Mark Frost, where I don't think he would ever really consider himself a historian, but he's passionate about history. And then as for tapping into something subconscious level, Lynch, for the last, I think it's got to be at least 50 years at this point. He's not gone a day without transcendental meditation where there's just these ideas come to him subconsciously. So it's completely feasible that both of their methodologies, uh, regardless of how similar, how different they are, could arrive to these things that we've been talking about and how they can overlap and integrate themselves into the Twin Peaks mythos.
1: Yeah. And you know, it would be fantastic if, if anyone is interested out there, it could be yourself. You might be interested. It would be really fun to do a series of connecting Twin Peaks scenes and characters and interactions and lines and circumstances with real life Snoqualmie Valley doppelgangers, if you will. That would be absolutely fascinating. So you talk about the real episode and what happened, and then a story that's almost identical or very similar would be explained in real life. And sometimes these stories that happen have zero connection. So people have never seen Twin Peaks. They've never seen one episode. They have no connection. And they act and do things like the show. And it's crazy. But you could totally do a whole series, a off of like what you're doing right now. And it would be hilarious and fun and weird and cool. Since we're winding
0: down, was there anything you want to talk about? Like the Nez Perce from Chief Joseph death up until present day in terms of uh, what they've dealt with since then? Or were there any closing thoughts you had for it?
1: Well, yeah, the Colville Reservation, as you know, we have, we have reservations around this area. Now, you're in the Midwest, is that correct? Admittedly, uh, I live on the East Coast. Oh, you're in, Oh, I'm sorry, you're on the East Coast. I apologize. Yeah. So the one thing that I will say about the Pacific Northwest is we do have a lot of tribal representation. We have reservations here, and people are way more visible. As you go to the Midwest, like I'll give Missouri as an example, right? Missouri, because of the Indian Removal Act of 1830, Everyone was removed from that area. There there are no tribal offices in the state of Missouri. There's just no representation. You have to go to Oklahoma or you have to go to a neighboring state. And so the one thing that I feel very blessed about is in the Pacific Northwest, we do have so many cultures that are still represented in an obvious way, and they're very active and they're coming back. And it's really neat to see And watch some of these tribes have like a news channel or they have like a a newsletter, you know, subscribe and follow and see what they're working on. Because a lot of tribes here are busy rehabilitating the environment. They're not only bringing their culture back, but they're working on salmon restoration. And they're also working on preservation, indigenous plants and the environment. And they're also working on an economic level. And there's so much... To be learned about that. And it's a point of pride to see the culture coming back. And just to make it very clear that, you know, Nez Perce and many other tribes and their descendants, they're still alive, they're still here, and they're doing very well. And a lot of people are expanding into the non native community and creating opportunities for everyone. I would say that about our local tribe here they are donating, you know, they donate from the casino revenue. To non-native causes, their cup overflows, and they share their money with lots of organizations in town, and that's going to continue. And the prediction is, in 100 years, 200 years, we're all going to integrate even more. That's just the way that we are. And the native communities are going to continue to thrive and grow and come back, and they're going to be, you know, nations within a nation, and more so powerful in 200 years. They're going to be more prevalent. We're all going to be in a native community. At least a hybrid community, I would predict in 200 years. Everyone is going to be more and more influenced by it. Right now, would you say in your life, in your neighborhood, how much Native American influence do you have personally in your life? How much interaction do you have? I would ask, I'm asking you that question.
0: Um, I guess it's a little different where I live in New York State, where uh, it seems like, because I was mentioned before about the gambling and substance abuse addiction, is that I feel like at least where I live, it seems like that's a little more prevalent, where a lot of reservations are in close proximity where I live, but also it seems like there's a bit of a disconnect uh, between people who live on the reservations and people who don't. So uh, that's the thing, is that it seems like in Washington, there's definitely a deeper rooted passion for for the indigenous people that live within that area of Washington. But it seems like where I live in New York state that uh, we'd have a little ways to go on that.
1: Yeah, well, my prediction is that, you know, in your area, in 200 years, there will be that will come back and it will be way more prevalent and common in everyday life. And that's that's going to happen all throughout North America, the indigenous people will continue to grow and expand and back. And right now you don't feel it. You don't experience it necessarily, but there will be a day, you know, and it it will happen. And it's just a very positive way to, I want to point that out in a very positive way because it it gives people a good feeling and it's the truth. And I encourage everyone to be an ally and become part of, you know, these organizations. So that's about all I got to say. I think, what do you, you have any other questions for me?
0: Um, I don't know if I have necessarily questions, but I guess the comment I'll say is that I'm glad that we're ending on a positive note just because uh, we've been talking about Chief Joseph where he did everything to be anti-war and to be as amicable with any of the white settlers that are coming through. And it seemed like every turn that, like, it always worked against him. But I'm glad that we're reaching a point where that can all dissipate and that there can be more common ground, like like you said, in the next couple hundred years. Uh, hopefully less, but that we are reaching certain progress.
1: I, I believe it. Yes. In my in my experience, you know, I started working with different native organizations, tribes in the area about 1997. And so in my lifetime of experience, I will say, yes, it's it's going to get better and better. And there's a lot of great things ahead.
0: But since we're winding down, was there anything you'd like to plug in terms of stuff that you're working on, stuff you're doing, causes you believe in or anything of that nature?
1: No, I just really enjoyed the conversation. And these, um, these conversations are really important. And also to provide an example for other people, because I know that a lot of people that are non-Native get really nervous about talking about Native American things. And I hope that my example of how I use my words is an inspiration because a lot of people struggle. And I think that if we can create these com- kind of conversations, it's just going to better our society. You know, my wife is First Nations, very passionate, supporting you know her tribe. She's from Northwest Territories, Canada, a little village called Fort Liard, Northwest Territories, the Dene people. And out in front of our house, we have a story pole that proudly displays the creation stories of her people, of her tribe. And I carved the story pole in collaboration with her mother and Laura. Her mother had a dream, uh, a vision, and, and wanted us to carve this sculpture, and she dreamed this beautiful sculpture. And Laura began to draw the images and stack them on top of each other. And then I took the drawings and I started carving a log and we carved this beautiful monument. So I just want to say, hopefully this conversation helps somebody out there to know how to deal with and how to discuss these, these subjects, you know, in, with respect and to move forward. Because I know a lot of people have a very difficult time with these subjects.
0: And like I was saying before recording is that I want to do some that honored like the Nez Perce tribe and made sure that like I had every sensitivity in mind because Mm -hmm. it's uh, I think of just when I took my indigenous people class that that's always like the best approach is that it's like you were saying also in the recording is that it's not a matter of like, you know, how much, you know, historically on cases, but more of like how passionate you are about how you approach it and how much you want to uh, you know, help with it.
1: Absolutely. And I think you did a great job. I think you did a terrific job looking back at our conversation. Everything was spot on. I didn't hear anything that was egregious or anything. I, I think you did great. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. And um, I guess
0: on that note, uh, thank you for coming on. You know, I thought that you were like the best possible choice for this just because of your connection, even regardless of how many people it was or wasn't, because it's like I was saying before, there's
1: always that uh honor that I want to have uh when I discuss uh tribes. Oh, no, you did a great job. You did a great job. And if if you ever get a call or if you get contacted by someone from their cultural department, yeah, I know you'll follow up, but, uh, you know, that'd be great to follow up with maybe a tribal member that would like to redo this interview and set the record straight. So if you do receive that message, you know, which could happen. Yeah, that would be a great honor.
0: So there you go thank you for coming on bob this was a huge uh this is a huge deal and uh it was great to have you on oh thanks
1: for your time man i appreciate it it
0: was a lot of fun together